Hello, my name is Marina Stilianu, and I am a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues here at Dickinson College. I am joined today by Emily Newberry, class of 1966, who is an accomplished poet and advocate here to give a talk titled Healing and Wholeness in Coming Out at the Clark Forum. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Of course. To begin, obviously you're a wonderful poet. When did you start writing poetry? If you don't get too formal in your definition of poetry, I would say I started writing in the 1960s mm-hmm. because I just had a, a flair for taking complex political lines and honing them down into things like slogans and songs. I would say that was be, the beginning of it. <laughs> so you went here, I hope you had a wonderful time attending Dickinson, but did your experience here at Dickinson influence your path toward activism at all? I wouldn't say Dickinson per se. It was a place, of course, where I was able to do a lot of looking into things and blossoming as who I became. It was more the context that I grew up in, mm-hmm. what I experienced as a child, so the different types of discrimination I experienced, and then as I grew up, my awareness of what other people's had experienced. That's really what was behind what I did, what I was kind of mulling through as a student at Dickinson and trying to figure out what my place was and, and how I wanted to be in the world. Thank you. In the 60s and 70s, from the background you gave us, you did a lot of activism for racial justice and workers' rights. Do you find that that work also translated into your advocacy for transgender individuals later on? Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the experience that I had back then, both positive and negative, helped me to think through, okay, now that I have come out as a transgender woman and I need to really do something about how I know I'm going to be treated and how I know other people are treated. How do I want to be present with it? What decisions do I want to make? And what's sort of my way of deciding what's the right thing to do as opposed to what might be, you might think will win in the moment or be successful from some limited perspective. What's the right thing to do, even if it doesn't give you an immediate win, quote unquote? Mm -hmm. That, I would say my experiences in the 60s and early 70s gave me that kind of a basis, yeah. That's fascinating. Touching on that, could you cite any particular experience as being particularly impactful in your activism? Was there any one moment while you were fighting for any of these issues that really changed your perspective on how to do that fight or anything like that? Uh, no, I would say it was a lot of small things. The big, my big moments where I really changed my perspective didn't come while I was active. They mm-hmm. came after I collapsed emotionally and spiritually and then began to be active again, and they were like spiritual experiences. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of small things like stories I heard of a couple of uh, black men who had befriended Ku Klux Klan's guys, and because of the way he treated them, they gave up their membership in a Ku Klux Klan. Or people I met who, it's like they declined to become active with the group I was with. It wasn't because they didn't like us, it's because it just, there was just something about our anger and determination to fight and fight, fight, 
just didn't sit right with them in mm-hmm. some way that they couldn't quite explain. But it made me, hmm, yeah, hmm. It just, you know, this, those little interactions that kind of built up over the years. Yeah. Or ways that I didn't, even though I was there with everybody fighting or writing the songs that were like angry and look at those bad people over there. I mean, I understood and, and felt the need to do it because of all the pain that was there in the world that I wanted to end. But there are ways in which there's some little voice in me that was saying, well, really? Do we have to be that way, right? <laughs> yeah, it's more like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it's very much tying into that. Obviously, you speak now a lot about doing activism through positivity and not with that very aggressive mentality. So how did you, I mean, you touched on this a little bit, but how did you manage to sort of find that positive outlook in spite of the discrimination that you face because it's hard, from my understanding, to transform that into positivity when you're faced with that type of reaction all the time? Yeah. And... um, A lot of it came from one of the things that I experienced in the 1960s, and I'll talk about this more in my talk at the Clark Clark Forum, is people in the movement who were supposedly all on the the same side treating each other as you need to be defeated because if you win, you know, the world will still be a bad place. Mm -hmm. You know, it won't solve the problems that we need to solve these problems. And... The last time I experienced that, I was working at United Airlines and was helping out with the Eastern Airlines strike. And as that strike wore on and it clearly wasn't being successful, I saw my ordinary working class friends doing the same things mm-hmm. to each other. And I just I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't participate in that. I, I mean, they're all good people and I, I understood why it was frustrating and so forth. I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And that was like the, one of the turning points for me. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. To shift a little bit towards your poetry again, do you think that there's a particular poem that you've written that resonates with the talk you'll give tomorrow? Interesting. Well, I mean, I, I will have in my uh, PowerPoint, I'll have my mission statement, which is actually a poem. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the one that definitely resonates with it. It's, right. It's like, boom! It just came out of me too, and I I didn't plan it or think it through. Mm-hmm. But another one, I guess another one would be in the mm, early '90s, I think, late '80s, early '90s. There was a, a strike of women who worked in the sweatshops mm-hmm. in the Bay Area who a couple of those sweatshops had closed because of the way they got squeezed by the designer companies that, you know, paid them to make their beautiful clothing. Mm-hmm. And these seamstresses, they would lose jobs. They'd, they'd actually invested, given money, some of their money that they'd earned selling clothes to the boss who owned the place to try and keep it open. And um, they were having these demonstrations. And I wrote a song about their situation that really was just me listening to them and writing about them. But it, it came, I did it in a way that I, I sang it at a meeting, that big mass meeting they had, you know, like to support each other and food and 
you know, keep, keep the movement going. And after I sang it, bunches of them came up and thanked me, and one of them said, you told our story. And I, and I realized there was just a way in which I had just listened to them mm-hmm. and told their story, not in a way of calling names or pointing out evil, evil, although it does, the poetry in the song does make some people look bad because of what they were doing. But it was more about see what's happening and see the effect on these real people and, and making them real not just um, a headline or a caricature. And they felt that I had made them real as human beings. That was a different type of poetry from the what I did in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And it was very, I mean, the rhyme, and, you know, it was very poetic, so <laughs> even in a technical term. So. Right. Yeah. Thank you. So we've already touched on this a little bit, but you speak a lot about adopting this humanizing aspect to activism, this kind and understanding perspective, despite bias, despite hate. But it can be difficult to translate that into actual mental practice. So can you speak on that a little bit, how you find yourself actively practicing this outlook? I would say, first of all, the title of my next book, the working title is It's Not That Easy. Mm -hmm. Just for that reason, First of all, because there are real wrongs being done. Mm -hmm. People are being harmed. And there's people in institutions who are carrying out the actions that create that harm. And that's real. You can't get away from that. Mm -hmm. And it's totally normal and understandable to have feelings about that. Anger, pain, despair, whatever. And that comes up and it's normal, it's totally, you just, you, I'm having those feelings. You know, that's life. That's, that's what happens to us humans. The challenge is, how do I translate my, those feelings, which are me getting there's something real happening here that needs to be changed, into some action that actually creates a, a change in a fundamental way? Mm-hmm. Because one of the easiest things to do is when you feel like there's a crisis, there's people being harmed, it's got to stop, or there's this big fight, if that bill gets passed, look at all the people that are going to be harmed by it. When you run into those situations, it's easy to go back to what you know in your gut subconsciously, unconscious bias, which is we react based on what we learn from the world we grew up in. Mm-hmm. which is patriarchal, racist, you know, go on and on about it. And even when we don't realize it, we're, we can easily recreate, okay, I'm the leader and I've got the answers, just do what I say, mm-hmm. which is an old way of looking rather, look, I think I've got a good idea, can we just talk about it because I want to get your reaction, mm-hmm. which is inviting a conversation, even if you're playing a leading role okay. of being a different kind of leader, are you reacting out of fear or what a sense of crisis to jump up and be that old kind of leader? Mm-hmm. Which then, if people go along with it, it recreates the old system. Or if they if they rebel against you in a way that's the old way of rebelling, just reinforces you know you, it just becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And that's it's a, it's hard to do that in the moment when you feel like it's a crisis. That's the conversation you have to have with yourself 
when you're not in a crisis, to remind yourself in small ways what's a different way of reacting that doesn't recreate the old way so that when the crisis does come, that sense of connection to those deeper values don't get lost. That they, they become part of your subconscious way of reacting. Just like learning to ride a bicycle. Once you learn it, you don't have to think about it. You mm-hmm. just do it. Thank you. So I think that that translates very well to my next question, which is obviously right now we're seeing that in a few instances this type of legislation, these types of policies that create that gut reaction, specifically that the Don't Say Gay law that recently passed in Florida, or um, Texas Governor Abbott's actions against uh, transgender children and their parents. So we're seeing the repercussions of that, but also the activism that those policy, policy changes have brought. So what would you say to the activists of my generation that are facing this and trying to fight against this as we see it affect us? So one thing that, that makes it possible for laws to get, like that to get passed is misunderstanding old beliefs that people have that they don't even know where it came from. Mm-hmm. The fears they have about this, um, these unknown things that they've heard about happening in the schools and, oh God, our children, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of fear that they have. And it's mostly about things they don't really know what they're talking about. And so if you say, whoa, you stupid, ignorant, blah, 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 they're going to say, no, I'm not. I care about the children. How dare you call me that name, right? Mm-hmm. If you help them to see real people in some way. Here's a real child and what they went through and their story. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that story? What do you think should be done about that child if they were in your school? It makes it harder for them to hold on to that hardcore idea. Some people will change because of that and some won't. To the extent some percentage of people who would support the law are like, mm, well, I don't know, mm, maybe not, maybe maybe that's too harsh, or in some way don't get quite so caught up in the hysteria around it. There's the possibility for it either not passing or it gets passed and then it, people can quickly see the harm. And so it's human stories, using story as a way of making connection with people on a level that's not about some high-level idea that they have in their heads that has nothing to do with the real world usually that makes it possible for them to, to change their perspective. You might still lose in the short run in that the law gets passed. And we're at a time when there's some states where the people who've been elected so far are going to do some really foolish, nasty, <laughs> harmful things. But how do you lay the groundwork? where that might change. One way is with real story. Another way is to the extent is who are the people that you can reach out to one-to-one to mm-hmm. talk to that aren't the hardcore ones that are never going to listen to you. Fine, let them be. Don't go over there and try to bash them into change and they won't. What are the people who, even though they'll argue with you, they might actually be listening in a way that sometimes you don't even know they're hearing you. But at least they're in conversation with you. Are you going to be able to, what are ways you can have that conversation with them, either directly or indirectly? Those are the kinds of things, and there's got to be a lot of creativity, and I don't have 
you know, the, the 30 tactics to use. Mm -hmm. the, the tactics you use come out of the particular situation. But something that's grounded in real human interaction and, and seeing the other person as a human being who's, they think they're doing well, they mean well, they're trying to make the world a better place, mm -hmm. reacting just like anybody else to what they fear. Be that human being in the room with them that doesn't treat them as though they're the enemy, doesn't put up with any nonsense, you know, has clear ideas and beliefs and will stick up for them, but does it in a way that's generally willing to listen and to insist, okay, I listen to you. I would, I think it's the right thing to do is for you to listen to me. You know, it's just to challenge people on that level. Let's be good to each other in that way. Treat each other like real human beings and not like some idealized straw person or something. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. As we've touched on, all of these issues are very steeped in difficult emotions and very primal emotions. And with that, in my experience and the experience of the other, disclosing identities that don't fit with society's norms, whether they be sexuality, uh, non-conforming gender identities, there is an element of fear located in that choice and in that moment of coming out. So how do you advise getting past that and having that moment where you acknowledge that that the risks are there and that fear is there, but there can be something beyond that. Oh, it's the person who is just coming out? Yeah. <clears throat> what I did was, first of all, acknowledging, accepting that I had grown up with self-hate. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just about what other people thought about me, it's what I had adopted from the world around me as a small child. And that, so I had to deal with that. And that wasn't anybody, anything anybody else could do but me. And another way was just, okay, where is the place where I feel comfortable going, where I can find support? Mm -hmm. And I was lucky where I lived that there was called the Northwest Gender Alliance, and you mm -hmm. could go to the meetings. I didn't care how you dressed or what you called yourself. you just go and talk, and if you, you know, get to meet people and so forth. So it was a safe place for me. And from that, I started figuring out where are the other safe places, and I found them, um, mostly with people that I had known before I came out. Yeah, I would say that's the most important thing. And then you can also go and, I mean, I had read some, some books and continue to read books about other people's experiences. It's more vicarious, but those are real people and they had, you know, they came out, you know, probably much more difficult times than you are. Right. And that's, so that can give you a guidance what worked for them and what didn't. Would that work for me or not? You can just think about those things yourself and not worry about anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> so my last question, your latest book, Turning Inside Out, recently was published, and you did mention that you have another project that you're working on. Would you like to share a little bit about that or any other projects that you have? Well, the, the, this, this current book, Turning Inside Out, was kind of in the works for like 10 years. Not because I have was telling myself I need to write a book, but because I had just been thinking about certain things and, you know, as I got a new job and how do I react in this new job and just thinking those things through and remembering things I did through in the past, the book was already kind of cooking in there. And so when I met 
Todd Nordgren, and um, we talked about me coming and speaking to Dickinson. I said, well, great, and just in preparation, I'll, I'll try to write like a little pamphlet, you know, to be a part of that speaking experience. And I started writing, and I said, you know, there's a whole book. So I hadn't expected, right? Mm -hmm. And so this, having written that book, it raises what I think is a fundamental question. And having raised the question, I thought for like 30 seconds myself, I thought, well, you know, it's, in the moment, it's not that easy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's easy to say, do you know, stay connected to your deepest values, but it's a big challenge. Otherwise, everybody would just do it if it was easy. Right. So it's already using my own experiences and thinking about what conversations do I want to invite people into, which what ones are they willing to uh, get involved in, what real-world experiences that people have that demonstrate why it's hard, mm -hmm. how does that show up in the real world, and what are the kinds of things that people do as they grapple with that issue to the extent that it's something that they think about. Let's start talking about that because the more people talk about it and, and realize it's not just me having this and it's not just an idea in somebody's head. This is something that happens all the time. And here's some real people who are thinking about it and trying to come up with ways to respond. That really excites me. Okay. You know, I mean, my, in my current job, I work in, in healthcare, bringing. Um, patients in to sit on things like advisory councils and work with staff to mm -hmm. uh, create positive change in healthcare. And my tagline is, I help other people shine, because mm -hmm. I'm bringing them on board to do the work. And so the, the passion I feel for this possible second book, well, second, third, fourth, whatever it is, um, is that that's a way of helping other people shine, mm -hmm. just by encouraging people to tell their stories and starting to put them together and seeing what are the commonalities and you know, what are the further questions that you know come up that need to be grappled with. Yeah. Thank you so much. This concludes our interview. Thank you so much for all of your insightful comments. On behalf of the Clark Forum and Dickinson College, thank you again for taking the time to have this conversation with me.